we're looking at today, very apropos for the culture we're in right now, and that is how to be ready for the return of Christ. And I tell you what, signs of the times are kicking in, and I think we're getting close to the return of Christ. And, 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 and a lot of people have an attitude, even Christians have an attitude that they, they really don't think it's that big a deal, the return of Christ. I've talked to people that say, you know, I'm a post-trib, I'm a pre-trib, whatever. I've talked to some people that say, well, I'm a, I'm a pan-trib. And what, what does that mean? I, I'd ask them, what does that mean? They say, well, that means I think it's just all going to pan out in the end. And I'm going, seriously? Seriously, we need to be people that are ready for the return of Christ and don't have a lackadaisical attitude about the return of Christ because it's around the corner. And we're going to look at just, I'm going to give you some principles this morning from the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, on how to be ready for the return of Christ. And it's an important topic, it really is. And it was an important topic in the Scriptures, too. All throughout the Scriptures, there's Scripture after Scripture that talks about the return of Christ. Uh, uh, And I believe that the New Testament disciples, based on what's written in the New Testament, I believe the New Testament disciples thought that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. I mean, the New Testament uh, apostles were there when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And when, they, when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, it says, after he had said these things to these disciples, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine that being there? All of a sudden, he steps on a cloud, and it's like an elevator going up to heaven. And as he was going up to heaven, it says in verse 2, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and these angels from heaven said to them, Jesus is coming back the same way he's leaving, and that's on a cloud. And he is. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18 says, when the trumpet blows, we're going to be caught up in the clouds with him, and we're going to see him as he is, and we too will be like him. That's the rapture. That caught up is the rapture. That's right around the corner. And the signs of the times, again, are kicking in, and we're getting close to that. Um, It's interesting. Jesus talked about this too in John chapter 14 when he was talking about heaven. He said to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, we sang about the Father's house this morning, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And Jesus said, I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That's the rapture. He's coming again to receive us to himself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised he's coming again. And he's coming again to receive us unto himself. And the scriptures are complete all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. There's references after references to the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some stats on that. It says both testaments, some of my study this week said, both testaments are filled with references to the return of Christ. 1,845 references to Christ's second coming are found in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? 1,845 references to Christ's second coming found in the Old Testament. 17 Old Testament books give the second coming of Christ prominence. 260 chapters in the New Testament uh, talk about the return of Christ. 318 references to the second coming of Christ. One out of every 30 verses concerned about the return of Christ, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is about the return of Christ. That's amazing. 
Um, interesting. That's why Romans chapter 13 tells us, do this knowing the time that's already for the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation's nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, church, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light, and let us, not, let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing, drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity, and sensuality, nor in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. And then I like what Titus said about this too. Another disciple and writer of the scripture said, uh, Paul, excuse me, said to Titus, Paul said to Titus, said, Titus 2.13, I'm looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory Notice, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope, church. Our blessed hope is Jesus is coming again. Our blessed hope is soon and very soon. We're going to see our King, right? And we should be excited about that. We shouldn't have a, well, I'm just a pan-trib. It's just going to pan out in the end. No, 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 no. I'm a pre-trib, by the way. I think there's scripture after scripture that says there's coming soon a day when Christ is going to catch us up in the clouds. We're going to see him, and he's going to bring us to heaven to glory with him. And we're going to be raptured out of here. I like what Alexander McLaren said about this, the great Bible teacher and commentator. Let's put it up on the screen. It's a great quote. It says, the apostolic church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death in heaven. The early Christians were looking for not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but the early Christians were looking for a break in the clouds called glory. They were not looking for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. I like that. They felt man's chief end was to get right with God or be left behind when Christ returns. The reality of the imminent return of Christ has been the acre for believers throughout the history of the church. And could I get an amen on that church? Amen. amen. That's our anchor. That's our hope. The Christ is coming. He's, he's right around the corner. And you know what? The more I study the Bible prophetically, the more I see that the signs of the times are kicking in. One of the major signs of the return of Christ, that the rapture is going to happen, is Israel had to come back to the land after almost 2,000 years. And they had to not only come back to the land, they had to have, have owned the land again. And in 1948, against all odds, Israel came back to the land and they, were, they, they got the, their nation back. And then in 1967, uh, the Six-Day War, they, they got their city back, the city of David. And then our president has actually uh, declared Jerusalem, uh, the city of David, the capital of Israel again. And that's great. That's signs of the times kicking in. Another sign of the times is just all the technology that's happening. And it says in Daniel chapter 12, at the end of the age, it says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Listen to what's going to be happening at the end of time. Many will be going what? Back and forth. And what else will be happening? Knowledge will increase. Can you say internet? It's, it's exponentially increasing, the amount of knowledge. Can you say uh, Lear Jets, Concord? It says that at the end of the age, people are going to be going to and fro like no, no other time in history. 150 years ago, the main form of transportation was, was horses. Now we can step on a plane and be across the, the ocean in just you know, eight hours. It's amazing. We're at the end of the age. I believe that also at the end of the age, what's going to happen is there's going to be a global coming together. Global economy, global religion, 
global um, dominion. What's happening in our, in our world today? Again, with the internet, the economy is going global, isn't it? And what's happening in religion today, too, is there's a universalism that's even penetrating churches today that says all religions are fine, all different roads lead up to the same God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. It is already coming into shape in our culture. That's the signs of the times. And what also is going to happen at the end of the age is the Antichrist, Revelation 13, is going to have the ability to have a mark that's going to be on the hand and the forehead of every single person that's under his dominion, and you, you can't buy and sell without the mark. That's happening. The, the technology is here. They're already, they're, they're already doing that to our animals. Did you notice that? They're putting chips in our stinking dogs because they want to be able to, if their dog runs away, there's a chip in them. That's the next step is they're going to want to put chips in you for health reasons and whatever else. I think Bill Gates is already talking about that, isn't he? And it's all going, and hey, what's happening with this virus not right now, what's happening with the virus is there's more and more governmental, governmental control. That's paving the way for the Antichrist, because the Antichrist is going to have total control globally in regards to people in government. He's going to control the world through government, and guess what's happening in our culture right now? Controlling the world through government, and they're even trying to control the church. Look out what's happening in California right now when there's a war going on between churches and the governor because the governor is saying churches need to stay shut down, and, and we're going to keep them shut down. If they don't stay shut down, we're going to fine them $1,000 a day, and we're going to throw the pastors in, in prison. I'm so glad I'm not out in California right now because if they started doing that here, I tell you, I tell you what, I'd start a prison ministry because I'd be in prison. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's happening. This governmental control, it's happening right now, and it's paving the way for the Antichrist. And I'm so glad to see that we have pastors out in California that are, are sticking with preaching the word, and they're sticking with saying, hey, whether in season or out of season, whether it's legal or not, we are feeling called that we're supposed to be, bring God's people together again, because God's people in these last days need to be together. We need each other. We need fellowship. We need worship. We need to be in the word together because the end is near. And that's what it's saying at the very beginning of this scripture. It says, Peter begins in verse 7, says, the end of all things is at hand. Another version says, the end is, of all things is near. And if Peter said that almost 2,000 years ago, how much more true is that today? And you're saying, well, Peter was wrong in that. Hey, all since the beginning of the church in the first century, there's been a doctrine that's called the imminent return of Christ. And listen, it's an it's, it's a important doctrine for us to hang on to. It's the, it's the doctrine that any minute Jesus could come back and return for us, the church. And you know why that's important for us to hold on to that doctrine of the imminent return of Christ, that the end of all things is at hand? Because it's going to put an urgency in the way we live for Christ. It's going to put an urgency in our lives to reach other people for Jesus. I mean, how would you behave the rest of this day today if you thought at the end of the day today, Jesus is returning? Tonight's the night. You're going to be raptured tonight. I think you'd be living with holiness. I think we would be living with holiness. I think we'd be on the phone calling everybody who could and telling them about Jesus. Because Jesus is going to rapture us out of here soon. And that's the doctrine. The end of all things is near. It's at hand. We need to live like that. That's why the first century Christians reached the entire Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ within 100 years without planes, trains, automobiles, or internet. 
because they had this urgency about their walk with Christ because of the imminent return of Christ, that Christ is coming. The end of all things is at hand. We need to live that way because I believe it is. It's getting very close. All those signs are kicking into place. Now, Jesus said we won't know the day or the hour of his return, but he did say you'll know the signs. And just as you see the sky and when it's getting towards dawn, you, you know what time it is. And Jesus said, the signs of the times will be in place at my return, and the signs are kicking in. So, how are we supposed to live with all that? That's a long intro, I know, but with all that in place, how are we supposed to live? Let's go to our scripture. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. If you're there, say amen. There it is. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, first of all, with the, with the imminent return of Christ, that Christ is coming for, for the church. He's about, soon and very soon, he's going to rapture us. With that in mind... First thing it says on the list, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. That's interesting. Sound judgment, what is that? That's wisdom. It's making the right decisions. It's, it's every day we have, we have an opportunity to say yes to the spirit or no to the spirit. We have an opportunity to say yes to the flesh or no to the flesh. Every day we have an opportunity to say, I'm going to choose to live God's way or the world's way. I'm going to choose to go with, go with what I know is righteous or what I know is wicked. And we have an opportunity every day to have sound judgment. And every day we need to choose wisdom. Every day we need to choose. In sound judgment, we need to choose to go the way of God's word instead of the way of the world. That's a choice. Again, Deuteronomy 30, Moses told God's, God told God's people, he said this, hey, there's a choice before you, God's people. That's life or death, blessing or cursing. And Moses' counsel to God's people was, hey, choose life. Choose life. Have sound judgment in your decisions. Because as I've said for years now, godly decisions lead to a godly direction, which lead to a godly destination. And if you don't like your destination in life right now, if you don't like where you're at right now, go back to your decisions. Go back to making godly decisions that will lead to a godly direction, that will lead to a godly destination. And that's all human responsibility. Yeah, God is at work in us by the Holy Spirit. He's working in us through sanctifying us, making us more like Christ. But every day we've got to have sound judgment in the decisions we make so that we go with the flow of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives of that sanctifying, sanctifying process. Sound judgment. And what does wisdom mean? Wisdom, the very word, it means skill. It means skill in everyday living. And that's one of the things I love about studying God's word. Because the more you study God's word, the more God's word is going to equip you for righteousness to live with sound judgment. Now, the second thing it says, along with sound judgment, if we're going to live ready for the return of Christ, go back to it. It says, sound judgment and sober spirit. Sober spirit. The word sober there means alert. It means that you're not under the influence of anything but Jesus Christ. And in these last days, we need to have sober spirit. We need to be on the alert, church. Why do we need to be on the alert? Because we're told in, in, later in 1 Peter, it says, be, same word, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Here's why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Newsflash. <laughs> we got a real enemy. Newsflash. 
We're not, we're not on vacation for 70, 80 years in this world. We're in a war. We're in a war, and we got a real enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we got to be a sober spirit. we got to be people that say, I'm not going to be mastered by anything but Jesus Christ. I'm going to be sober. I'm not going to be under the influence of anything but Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. I'm going to live a spirit-filled life, a spirit-controlled life, a, a life that's under the influence of nothing but Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Ephesians 5.18. Look, look at it up on the, on, on the board there. Ephesians 5.18 tells you how you live a spirit-influenced, spirit-filled life. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, right? But be, what is it? Filled with the Spirit. And here it is. Here's the ingredients to a Spirit-filled life. Speaking to one another in Psalms. That's the Word of God. Speak to one another in Psalms and the Word of God. And hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then it also says a part of the Spirit-filled life is always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's ingredients there to the Spirit-filled life. Be a person of the Word. Be a person of worship that loves to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Be a person of thanksgiving that you're always giving thanks. You just, just love to just thank the Lord for all the blessings that are in your life. And be a person that's right in your relationships. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be willing to, 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 to have respect in those relationships to the point that you're even subject yourself to one another in the fear of Christ. That's a spirit-filled life, and it's all a part of living a life that's ready for the return of Christ. And you know what? I'm still figuring this out too as, as someone who's walked with the Lord now close for about 40 plus years. I'm still trying to get it right. I'm still on a daily basis asking God for wisdom to make the right decisions. And I tell you what, I still make some dumb decisions. Just to ask my wife. I, I still do dumb things. I do on a regular basis. But I'm trying trying my best to live with skill in godly decisions instead of ungodly decisions. I'm trying to have a life that's not in the flesh, but a life of the Spirit. I'm trying to walk in the Spirit so I don't fulfill the lust of my flesh. I'm trying. And that's all God's asking for. He's asking all of us to have hearts and say, God, help me in these last days to be on the alert. Help me to have a sober spirit. Help me, God, in these last days to have godly decisions instead of ungodly decisions so I'll be ready for the return of Christ. Amen? And then it goes on after that first point. It says, hey, second thing, you want me to be ready for the return of Christ? Have the purpose of prayer. What does that mean? If you're going to be ready for the return of Christ, not only do you have to have wisdom, you have to have sound judgment, sober spirit, but if you're going to be ready for the return of Christ, also, you've got to have the purpose of prayer. And what I think that's saying is you have to have a life that's a prayer-driven life, a life where you're purposing to pray on a regular basis. You know why that's important? Because we're all busy. We all got a lot of stuff to do, don't we? We all got schedules that are packed. And the only way you're going to be a person of prayer is to purpose in your life that you're going to carve out time on a regular basis to pray. It's very important. New Testament apostles were modeled to us again. Interesting, as you look at the Gospels of Christ, as you look at the narrative of Jesus walking with his apostles, the only thing the apostles asked Jesus to teach them to do was to pray. Did you know that? They didn't ask Jesus to teach them to preach. 
They didn't ask Jesus to teach them to do miracles. They didn't ask Jesus to help them walk in water like you walked in water. They asked him just one thing, Lord, please, teach us to pray. And you know why they asked him that? Because they saw Jesus was his custom to be a man of prayer. They saw Jesus before they'd even get up in the morning. He was out in the mountaintops praying. They saw Jesus before he picked the apostles praying all night long for the Father's direction for the 12 apostles. They saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. And what was he doing? He's praying, purposing in prayer. And he's saying, oh, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But, Father, not my will be done, your will be done. He purposed in prayer throughout his whole ministry. And check this out. If Jesus, God in the flesh, needed to purpose himself in prayer and needed all this time with the Father in prayer, and he was God in the flesh, how much more do we need it to purpose in prayer? Interesting, New Testament apostles, as they started the church, they got busy. They had all these widows to take care of, Acts chapter 6, and the apostles got so busy serving the widows' food, they realized they weren't purposing themselves in prayer, and so they raised up the first deacons of the New Testament church, these men of God. They raised them and said, you guys, you're in charge of this ministry now because we need to devote ourselves to the the apostles' teaching and, and the ministry of the word, they said, and to prayer. And then in Acts 2.42, it says, describing the four pillars of the New Testament church, it says, they continually devoted themselves. What is it right there? The apostles' teaching, which is the word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And what they continually devote themselves to? Prayer! And Paul said this, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he said this, he said, pray without ceasing. And he also said in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's a question for you, Christians. Please. Are you purposing to pray on a regular basis? Do you have a daily time where you carve out time on a regular daily basis to be with God? To, 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 to read his word and then to spend some time in, in, in prayer where you, you talk to him and he talks to you. Quiet time should be a part of every single Christian's daily schedule. Well, I don't have time. Make time. If you have, if you have to set the alarm 20 minutes early, set the alarm 20 minutes earlier because your day will go much better if you begin it with time in the word and time in prayer. Martin Luther midst of the Reformation, midst of being a very busy guy. He was reforming the whole church. In the midst of it, he wrote in his journal, he said, I'm so busy today. I'm so busy that I, I, I got to spend at least an hour of prayer before I begin my day because I'm too busy not to pray. See that? The power of prayer. And that's why Jesus' brother, James, as he wrote the book of James, says, hey, the prayers of righteous men and women are powerful and effective. They availeth much. And that's why James got a nickname, the brother of Jesus got a nickname of Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying. His nickname was Camel Knees. Look at the calluses on James' legs. He's praying all the time. Camel Knees. So second thing, you might want to be ready for the return of Christ. 
Be purposeful in your prayer. Set out a time on a daily basis. You're beginning your day or you're ending your day, whatever you are. Either begin, end, hey, best thing to do is begin and end your day. Heidi and I have this room off our master bedroom. It's called the reading room. It's our favorite room in the house because it's, there's no TV in there. There's no radio in there. There's no music in there. We have rules in there. Turn your phone off. And, you just, and what we have is we have our Bibles in there. And we have reclining chairs and windows that look out on God's creation. We begin our day and we end our day every day reading God's word and praying. And it makes such a difference in helping us to live this life we're called to live as Christians. Purpose yourselves in prayer if you want to be ready for the return of Christ. Now let's go on with our scripture. And then it says in verse 8, above all, he's prioritizing this. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, what? Covers a multitude of sins. Hey, he says, above all, the highest priority in a Christian's life, even more, I think, more important than prayer, is to love. Jesus was asked one time, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus said, real simple. Of the 513 laws you have in your Old Testament, Pharisees that are asking me this, the, the greatest commandment of all the laws Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and foremost commandment. The second is like it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments, loving God and loving people, uh, it depends all the law and the prophets. It's the most important thing we do as Christians. It's the love. And notice what it says. We're to have a fervent love for one another. What's fervent mean? The word fervent means, uh, it's, it's, word, it's word used for runners that were stretching towards the finish line. It's a, it's a word that was used of stallions, stallions that were running towards back to the barn and to get back to their barn. It, it's a word of stretching. What it's saying there is as Christians, above all, we're to have this love that stretches, that even strains sometimes for the finish line because we're called to love one another. And why is that important? Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you're just a bunch of words and a bunch of knowledge and a bunch of doing stuff, but you don't have love, you're a noisy gong. You're giving some people some headaches. And he says, and without love, as Christians, we're nothing. It's true for me. When I first came into this thing of Christianity, I was lost. I was, I was skeptic. I was, I was just lost. I got saved. God rescued me out of the pit I was in. And then I got involved with Christians for the first time. Born again, Bible-believing Christians. And I was still a little skeptical. Because what's with these guys? You're too nice. You give me hugs and you call me brother. I'm not your brother. And I remember that. I remember just having this kind of walls up, especially when I got involved with these Christians. And, and I remember I was so lost that my language was a lot of Chicago kind of words, you know, four-letter words. The first couple months that I was in Christian fellowship, I, 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 we would be doing something or whatever else, so we'd be playing a game or something, I'd lose, and I'm very competitive, I'd lose, and the four-letter words would come out of my mouth, and I'd watch Christians, and they'd brace while I was saying these words, and I, did, I was so lost. Before that, I didn't even know why they were bracing. Finally, after a couple months, uh, uh, one of the leaders in this Bible study was in actually took me aside and said, hey, you say you're a Christian? I go, yeah, I'm a Christian. He goes, can you turn me to Ephesians 4.32 and show me, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And he said, you, you ought not to talk like that anymore. 
I said, really? And I stopped swearing from then on. But I had to pull somebody aside. But these Christians showed me such love, unconditional love, they put up with me for a couple months, even though my language was like this. And then finally they confronted me and told me, stop talking like that. And then I remember going on my first Christian retreat with these young lifers. And I'll never forget it because we were in this barn out in the, you know, Indiana or something. And we were, we were playing all these games and stuff. These are the, some of the nicest people with games because, again, I was from Chicago where it's more cutthroat. But these people were actually nice in the competing we were doing. And then I remember also just the love that was there. It's amazing. These people treated me with such kindness and love. And it was the cement that sealed the deal in my Christianity because of the love I saw among Christians. They all got my name right. They cared about me. And even when I was being a knucklehead, they loved me. Christians, let's do that for one another, right? You know, that's so important because the world's looking for reality in our Christianity. And they're not going to believe in something that we don't live out. And one of the greatest ways we live out our Christianity is not only by loving God, but by loving people. And that's why it says we're to have a fervent love for one another. And also says a part of our love for one another is as we're living in Christ-like love, our love will cover a multitude of sins. Now the word cover, interesting word, the word cover there is to cover up like plaster. And you know what you do when you plaster something? You're covering up holes, right? I hate doing that, by the way. I'm going to hire somebody to do any drywall we ever have. Because I've tried that before. I've tried to cover up the holes, and then you try to put the tape on there, and then try to mud it. And when the plasterer does it, it looks really good. When I do it, you're going to see it for the rest of the life of that house. But what are you doing when you're plastering? You're covering up holes. And what is our love supposed to do with one another? It's supposed to cover up the holes of other people. We're supposed to have, a, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, our love is supposed to not keep a record of wrongs suffered. Our love is to be patient with one another. Our love is to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. And our love for one another is never supposed to fail. And you know what? There's going to be holes. As we get together as Christians in our fellowship and our love for one another, what's going to happen is Christians at times are going to let you down. Christians are going to fail you because there's going to be holes. But our love for one another covers those things up. And we cover the holes. And we don't keep a record of wrongs suffered. We are kind and tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. In question, how often does God forgive you? It's a whole lot. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're to be kind, merciful, forgiving, loving people, and even covering up their holes with our love because that's what God does for us. I read it, I read it this, uh, either last night or this morning in my quiet time. In Jeremiah, it says that God loves us so much, he remembers our sins no more. He blots them out and he forgives us, and that's what we're supposed to do with one another. Husbands, wives, let's do that in our marriages, Right? Let's do that with our Christian friends that let us down sometimes. Love covers a multitude of sins. And let's keep a fervent love for one another. Amen? Amen. Because the world will, Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. By your beautiful buildings. By your Sunday school programs. By your words. 
What did he say? By your love for one another. That's the litmus test of our Christianity. All the world's going to see that we're disciples of Jesus by our love for one another. And then it goes on, a part of that love, the third ingredient to be ready for the return of Christ is be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now what does that mean? Well, it goes back to the first century culture. In the first century culture, what was going on was, was when Christians would travel, the only place they could stay, there was no holiday inns, there was no you know, motels, hotels like we have today, but there was uh, inns that were like pretty bad. There were places of gambling. There were places of prostitution. There were places of immorality. And so when Christians would travel the Christians in the cities that they would travel to would open up their homes, and they'd be hospitable. And so oftentimes when there would be apostles and prophets and evangelists and even pastors traveling, what the Christians in those churches would open up their homes to these traveling people that were doing ministry, and then when other Christians were traveling, they would send word ahead that they were traveling, and then the church would hear about that, and then the people in the church would open up their homes to these strangers. And that's what the word hospitable means. Be hospitable. The word hospitable, hospitable means to be fond and have a love for strangers. And that's important for us to do that in these last days too. We're to be opening up our homes to other Christians. We're supposed to be hospitable. And one of the ways we're hospitable by, is by the way we do church too. When people that are strangers come through that door, how do we treat them? Do we treat them with hospitality or do we treat them as they come in the door and take your seat that you normally sit? Hey, that's my seat. Don't you? I got a plaque on that. No, you don't have a plaque, but that's where I sit every Sunday. No, we're hospitable, right? Or when you're having somebody over to your house from the church or another Christian brother or sister, you're not, you're not vacuuming saying, why are we having these people over? That's, that says be hospitable without complaint. And some of you are smiling because you've had that same. I've been there. Heidi and I have both been there. We're getting all, doing all this extra work, having these people over. What are we thinking? It says, be hospitable without complaint. Again, in my college days, when I was at the University of Illinois in this sea of craziness, it was 45,000 students. It was the largest sorority and fraternity system in the country. Worldliness everywhere. I got involved with as much Christian fellowship as I could. And there was a church. It was a campus church. Actually, it had an interesting name. It was called BASIC. It stood for Brothers and Sisters in Christ. It was the name of the church. It was a wonderful church, New Testament kind of church. It was a discipleship church. I got discipled in that church. But one of the things that brought me into a place where we getting discipled in that church is every Sunday night, the elders who were the pastors and the deacons who were also leaders in the church, each one of them opened up their home and they had a meal for whatever college students wanted to come. And if you feed them, they will come in college. And I came a home-cooked meal instead of dormitory cafeteria, right? And I remember going to Daniel Goring, one of the pastor's house, every Sunday afternoon. He'd open up his home. We'd cook us a home-cooked meal, these college students. And then we'd have communion together. And then we'd have a Bible study. I got discipled in that. And a part of that discipleship was the hospitality of that pastor every Sunday afternoon opening up his home and being hospitable. Church, let's do more of that. Let's do more of opening up our home. Let's do more of hospitality. Let's do more of being fond of strangers. 
And when people come through that door at Calvary Chapel, let's love them, man. Let's let them know they're welcome. Let's not stay in our little holy huddles. Let's reach out and love the people that are coming through that door because that's what Jesus calls us to do and to be hospitable without complaint. Now let's close it up. The last ingredient that needs to be in place if we're ready for the return of Christ. Look at verse 11. It says this, or verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom, notice, belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And the church said, amen. Amen. Hey, the last thing that, that Peter's talking about here, want to be ready for the turn of Christ? Be a servant and a steward of Christ. And you know how we do that? Go back to our verses. As to be a servant and, stu- uh, a servant and steward of Christ, we need to realize, go back to verse 10, that we have a special gift and we're to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what that's saying? Every single Christian in this room, you got a gift. It's called a spiritual gift. And some of it, it says, some of you have speaking gifts. And some of you have serving gifts. He differentiates the spiritual gifts between speaking gifts and serving gifts. The speaking gifts are gifts like teaching, words of prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. All those are speaking gifts. But then there's a lot of serving gifts too. There's serving gifts of helps, serving gifts of mercy, serving gifts that we just talked about, hospitality. That's one of the spiritual gifts, hospitality. Serving gifts of administration. I don't got that gift. You can ask Heidi. I got a teaching gift, but I got to get other people around me that have that gift of administration. And that's a serving gift. And we all got different gifts. And listen, it says we're supposed to employ them, the gifts that God has given us. What does it mean to employ? It means put them to work. And if we're going to be ready for the return of Christ, let's be discovering the gifts that God has given us and let's employ them. Let's put them to work. There's over 20 different gifts listed throughout the New Testament that every believer has at least one of those gifts. You can find the list, pretty comprehensive list, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. And it gives a list of 20 plus different gifts. And if you're a Christian here today, God by the Holy Spirit has empowered you to have one of those gifts. And God wants you to use them. And you'll be ready for the return of Christ as you're serving. And I don't know about you, but when I see Jesus... I want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. And listen, what are those gifts for? Are those gifts to make you look good? Are those gifts to puff you up? Are those gifts to say, hey, I'm all that? No, those gifts, according to the scripture we just read, are to serve people. Actually, it says in 1 Corinthians, or Romans chapter 12, excuse me, it says that the gifts, the spiritual gifts, are for the common good. And as you use your gift, as you use your gift of mercy, you're going to bless somebody with that gift. As you use that gift of administration within ministry, it's going to bless some people as you organize things for the ministry and for the kingdom of God. That's going to bless people. It's for the common good. As you use your gift of teaching, you get in there with the kids or youth ministry, wherever you're teaching at, you're going to use that gift and you're going to bring blessing and com- to the common good. The gifts that you use, they're not to make you look good. 
They're there to serve people and to help people and, again, to love people. At, at this youth retreat we had, it was a lot of fun. I kind of popped in every day at the staycation they had, the lake retreat. We had 50, 60 teenagers there. It was awesome. They had a blast. Every day they were full on at the lake, and they had cookouts. And they, but it was, it was cool. After lunch and after, after dinner, they had devotions. And the last day, um, uh, one of the teens that's a part of that group actually was in charge of doing the devotions after lunch. And it was 50, 60 teenagers, a little intimidating there when you've got to speak before your peer group and, and bring a devotion from God's word to 50, 60 teenagers. So before he, I was there before the lunch and before he was going to give the devotion, he, he came up to me and said, Pastor John, give me some help here. <laughs> give me some tips. How, how am I supposed to do this here? And you know what I told him? Because I knew he had a gift. And he's got a calling to teach God's word, even as a 19-year-old or however, however old he is. I told him this. I said, make your focus while you're teaching these 50, 60 teenagers. Not about how well you're doing. Make your focus to try to help them through your teaching. Just focus on that you're using your gift to help these teenagers live more for Christ. And he got up there and he gave his 15-minute devotion or whatever, and he nailed it. And he helped the 50, 60 teenagers to, to live for Christ more by his example and by his teaching. That's what our gifts are for, right? They're not to make us look good. They're there to help people. And that's what he's saying here when he says, each one has a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards in the manifold grace of God. And then I, I like what it says there in verse 11 too. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were utterances of God. When we're speaking for God, we're giving actual, another version says, oracles for God to other people. And whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified. Again, the purpose of your gifts isn't you. It's to glorify Jesus Christ, to help people and glorify Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite quarterbacks of all time uh, in the NFL was a guy by the name of Kurt Warner. Remember Kurt Warner? Remember how he actually went from working as a quarterback in the Arena Football League, which is really the minor leagues of football? And I remember reading his life story, his bi biography, when he was getting to the Super Bowl and everything else. There was actually a book I read, and it talked about the fact that he was, when he was in the Arena Football <clears throat> League, uh, he was so broke, he was also working at a grocery store stocking shelves with groceries. And then somehow the Lord just blessed him. And then he became a Christian, and the Lord just continued to bless his career to the point that he went from in the, the cornfields of Iowa playing in arena football league to actually being recruited to play in the NFL. And then he got to be a first stringer, and then he went to the Super Bowl. And he had this gift, I mean, an incredible gift that God had given him to be a leader on that team and to do really well on that team. But I remember when he won the Super Bowl, I was watching him because I'd read his biography and knew he was a born-again Christian. And I was watching him, and as he won the Super Bowl, because all the Super Bowl uh, quarterbacks in the past that I'd seen, when they win the Super Bowl, they're coming off the field, and they ask him, what are you going to do now that you won the Super Bowl? And they, and they all say, well, I'm going to Disney World, right? You know what Kurt Warner said? He said, I want to give all the glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that's made this possible in my life. I love that. That's what we're supposed to do with all the gifts that we have. We point up, and we say, hey, anything I have has been given to me 
by God. Every good and perfect gift I have comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation, shifting shadow. Anything I have has been freely given to me by God, and it's not for me. It's for his glory and to help other people. And when we do that with our gifts, you know what God does? He blesses those gifts. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he exalts us, he uses us. Bunch of knuckleheads like us, he uses as we stay humble. Because before honor comes humility. He has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen, church? So how are we supposed to live with these last days coming upon us? What's supposed to be the, 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 the principles that Peter's given us to live right in these last days? Number one, live with sound judgment and what? Sober spirit. Number two, have a prayer-driven life where you're purposing to pray on a regular basis. Number three, have a fervent love, especially for brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, your love is to cover a multitude of sins. Your love is to cover their holes. Number four, practice what? Hospitality. Number five, be a servant and steward who uses their gifts to serve others. And ultimately, I'll add on to that, to the glory of God. Let's pray, church.